0: Hey everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Broll. Join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, to share the geography, history, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Be sure to check out the entire catalog of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coasts, and inland waterways at coastalnewstoday.com. Send me your feedback or ideas about topics for North Coast Chronicles to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com, and please be sure to recommend the podcast to your friends and family, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is The Port of Cleveland Rocks with Will Friedman, President and CEO. Mr. Friedman has led the Port of Cleveland for almost 13 years, and that's a lifetime in port directory years. In October, the port received $27 in federal port infrastructure grants. And in November, the port announced that the economic value of shipping exceeded $4.7 billion. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we'll talk to Mr. Friedman about today. Thanks for joining us, Will. Great to be with you. Also with us is our trusty engineer and my co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hey, Tyler, how's it going?
1: Hey, Helen, it's going good. How are you doing?
0: I'm great. Thank you. So, you know, people hear us talk every month and assume that we know each other and we do, but we never met in person until a couple of weeks ago when Tyler came to DC. He flew in from Southern California to attend my retirement ceremony and party. So thank you so much for doing that, Tyler. I just want to say you're much taller than you look online.
1: (laughs) Well, Helen, it was an absolute honor and privilege to be at your retirement ceremony in person. It was, a, it was incredible, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Helen Broll, the host of this show, is an absolute rock star. And uh, to, to see all of these uh, speeches at the ceremony and to see people lined up in this room at the reception, Helen, it was it a was real honor to be able to take all that in.
0: Yeah, thank you. And honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better send off from my colleagues and friends. And geez, it seems like every agency in the federal government with an interest in maritime transportation was in attendance. I mean, Coast Guard um, was my MC. Maritime Administration gave me a lovely uh, framed signal flags with my initials HB, which is way cool. Army Corps gave me a De Fleury Medal, which blew me away. Um, other people there was uh, the Army, uh, the Great Lakes. Um, St. Lawrence Seaway Development Corporation, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, TSA, National Geospatial Agency, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. (sighs) I knew I missed people, but uh, I'm just so glad, Tyler, that you got to join relatives and friends from government, the Hill, and industry. It was really amazing. And I thought, kind of really brought a wonderful closure to my 16 plus years at the U.S. Committee on the Marine Transportation System,
1: but upward and onward. And it was an absolute pleasure to meet you in person, Helen. I mean, you know, as as you said, (laughs) thank goodness, we do this uh, show remotely, and we have we started it in the midst of the pandemic, and we just haven't had the opportunity to get together face to face. We've talked about it. We've we've often uh, reflected how great it would be to be out there on one of those Lake Erie islands having a glass of wine watching the sun go down, but we've never had the opportunity to actually do it. So it was really a pleasure to uh, just share the space with you.
0: It was also cool that you got to meet at least two of the folks that we interviewed. One was my brother, Captain Russ Brol, who was a Laker captain, and I interviewed him on my second podcast. And then also last year, you met his wife, Lisa Broll. Uh, she was on our podcast about uh, conservation heroes of the Great Lakes. So I thought that was, I, know, anyway, I thought it was all cool. And thank you so much for taking time to fly all the way in from California. It was really terrific.
1: It was awesome and my pleasure.
0: I really hope that our listeners had the opportunity to listen to the December podcast called The Water Walker, The Life and Inspiration of Josephine Mandaman. Siobhan Marks joined us to share the story of and experience with Grandmother Josephine, who walked around the Great Lakes to highlight the importance of the Great Lakes resource to the indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes and to Mother Earth. The Anishinaabe are a group of people from the Great Lakes region of Canada and the United States, and they include the Ojibwe, also referred to as the Chippewa, the Odawa, Potawatomi, Mississaugas, Nipissing, and Algonquin peoples. The story of Josephine Mondaman, I found just to be incredibly inspirational, um, and to all of us, that really anybody, anyone can be a conservation hero for the Great Lakes, even without any resources other than the ability to walk a great around the Great Lakes. What was your impression, Tyler?
1: Well, I also uh, really enjoyed hearing about a traditional background that I had no knowledge of. And I really, I mean, I feel like it's the tip of the iceberg, Helen, but the way that native cultures looked at the Great Lakes and the surrounding lands and the ecosystem and the fact that the water is sacred, it's like a foundational element of life. I found all that to be so interesting and, and, and really in some respects makes sense that, that people who had lived there for centuries and centuries before uh, Western contact would have such an intimate spiritual connection with the lakes themselves.
0: Yes. And just as a reminder, this really came out of reading a children's book called the water Walker. So um, again, golly, without any money, any resources, um, these uh, grandmothers um, who were well into their 60s when they began started just to walk around the lakes and people would join them and offer them food and shelter. Um, and it was uh, pretty profound. They still do it so people can um, you know chase it down. But golly, I just enjoyed it so much. And I'm so grateful that Siobhan could join us. Our listeners may recall that I am from the north coast of Ohio. In fact, from a town 20 miles west of Cleveland. When I was growing up, I loved visiting downtown Cleveland to shop and have lunch at the Higby's department store. I didn't really think back then about Cleveland as a port city. Oh, sure, I saw ships out on the lake, but I didn't really relate to Cleveland as a port city. Well now, Cleveland was once upon a time known as the Forest City, and then the Sixth City. It was the first settlement founded in the Connecticut Western Reserve by the Connecticut Land Company in July of 1796, almost exactly 20 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and it was incorporated in 1836. General Moses Cleveland was an investor in the Connecticut Land Company, and he led the survey of its land within the Western Reserve. Now, typical for many early cities around the U.S., Cleveland was established on a river, in fact, the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. In the last episode, I asked Tyler to be ready to talk about what was on his mind, well, one of the things I asked about was wind energy development in the Great Lakes. I admitted that I knew very little, but I thought that there was an effort to build a wind farm near Cleveland. Well, Tyler, you are getting your wish to learn more because we have as our guest today, Will Friedman, the president and CEO of the Cleveland Cuyahoga Port Authority, or Port of Cleveland. Turns out that Mr. Friedman has been engaged in the wind energy initiative, as well as consistently leaning forward to advance the port of Cleveland within the region and internationally. All of the ports in the Great Lakes, well, all ports everywhere, are special and unique. But it seems that every time you turn around, the Port of Cleveland is executing a new initiative. Thanks for being here, Will. You joined the Port of Cleveland in 2010, and I teasingly said earlier that 13 years is a lot in port director years. But honestly, safe to say, things seem to be going pretty well for you.
2: Um, you know, you're absolutely right, Helen. Um, 13 years is a long time. Um for a port director here in the U.S., typically the, the ten years shorter. So, I've been fortunate to um, remain in this position and be able to accomplish um, some of our goals, and we're still working on uh, on others. So, um, really enjoyed my time here in Cle- Cleveland, and thanks for that that history. That's uh, that's helpful. And by the way, congratulations on your retirement from uh, federal government. Thank you. It sounds like you're you're staying quite busy, though.
0: <laughs> well, working on it. And certainly this podcast is a, a labor of love. So I look forward to continuing. But also, because I retired, I get to talk to port directors, I get to talk to shipping lines. So this is you're our first port director. So thank you so much for for setting us off on a, a great um, venture. But okay, so what makes the port of Cleveland so special? Will?
2: Well, um, I think I'd start with our location Um, going way back um, to uh, when the Seaway, St. Lawrence Seaway first opened. um, And then when this port um, got created, this port authority, which was about 10 years after that, um, we've always touted our location as being sort of the first port in and the last port out on the system. And I still think that's, um, advantageous. Uh, you know, if you glance at a map, you can see that Cleveland is about as far South as you can get on, uh, the Great Lakes, um, system. And we're far enough West that Chicago is only a five hour drive. So, uh, it puts us in a, in a good place for capturing cargo here, um, regionally. And, um, you know, we've been able to exploit that, um, to a fair extent in the last ten or fifteen years.
0: Well, Cleveland, um, I mean, um, Chicago driving is relatively short, but if by vessel, that's another story. So the fact that Cleveland um's location on the Great Lakes, like you said, is stones throw from Lake Huron and the St. Lawrence Seaway, but you're still east of, you know, the mid of Michigan. So um even though There are terrific ports all the way up to Duluth and Thunder Bay. Um, I think I can appreciate that your location um, is pretty uh, exceptional. Um, So the port is run by the Cleveland Cuyahoga Port Authority. But what does that really mean in terms of oversight? Uh,
2: Yeah, so um, ports are are set up in Ohio, um, you know, somewhat uniquely. And as you already mentioned, you know, the old saying is you've seen, one port, you've seen one port. We're all a little bit different. Um, so we're we're a hybrid um, between Cuyahoga County, our county and uh, city of Cleveland. Uh, they um, reached agreement uh, some years back to create the port authority under state statute. Um, and the mayor and the county executive both appoint um, board members to the Port Authority Board, and I report to that board. Uh, we operate, we're independent uh, of a city and county government. We're not city or county employees. We're employees of the Port Authority. We have our own budget. Uh, and for the most part, um, we get to operate autonomously. So it, it's a good setup, and uh, I think it's served uh, this county very well over the years.
0: So in some respects, because your board of directors is appointed by the mayor and the county commissioner, I think you said, um, are it, are they really kind of political appointments, would you, would you call them?
2: Yeah, they're political appointments. Um, although I would say that um, since I've been here, I've been fortunate that, it, you know, they've been very high caliber people and not really political in the way they oversee the port. Um, although they certainly are political appointees and of course are going to be very attuned to um, what the mayor cares about and what the county executive cares about. But, uh, you know, I've had um, strong uh, board leadership and great diversity on our board. And that's really that's really been uh, fortunate for me.
0: Well, that's really great to hear. I mean, those positions have a certain amount of clout, no doubt about it. And if, if you have a board that has the best interests of the the port, the city, um, you know, and the citizens um, in mind, then then you're rocking and rolling. It you're very lucky. Um, I've always wanted to know. So the the I always wanted to know where the port, what the port owns around it. I've certainly seen the port, and where it sits on the on the lakefront. Um, a stone's throw from ball fields. But I'm curious, how much property you own down there? I mean, do you actually own any of the property where the ballparks are or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is?
2: Yes. It's a little bit of a complicated question and I'll unpack. Um, So um, we we own, in the traditional sense, three different uh, facilities. One is our bulk terminal, which is on the west side of the Cuyahoga River, um, located on what we refer to here as Whiskey Island, which has its own colorful history that you may be familiar with. Uh, and then a little bit to the east, uh, right next to Cleveland Brown Stadium, is our general cargo uh, terminal complex, and we do own that as well. And then we have a nature preserve. It's a former dredge disposal um, facility. Uh, confined disposal facility that we used to call Dyke 14 that was built by the Army Corps. And um, when it was decommissioned, it got turned back over to the Port Authority and we've turned it into a um, really fabulous 90 acre lakefront nature preserve. So those are the three pieces of property that we really own and manage. Um, we do a lot of bond financing, um, which is um, not uh, typical for port authorities, it, it's it's more of a thing here in Ohio for sure, uh, and our port is one of the leaders. And because of that, we do own a land underlying Brown Stadium, and there, and we we continue to actually own the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which sits on the other side of Brown Stadium because we financed it. So if you were to look up the county records, who knows? We may be the biggest <laughs> owner in, in our county because we've we've financed so many of these. Um, non-port related, non-maritime related, um, real estate, uh, developments all over our county.
0: So, holy smokes, you actually own the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?
2: Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, uh, rather nominal ownership. Um, I don't get to go in there and, and, uh, you know, pick up any guitars or anything, but, um, uh, for purposes of, of, uh, uh, when it was financed, bonds were issued, uh, and then, and then we held on to the ownership all, all these, all these years. So, and that's, and that's quite common. We will quite often, um, after project revenue bonds are issued, uh, the port will lease these facilities back on a capital lease to, um, the real user, uh, the occupant. And, um, just hold on to the ownership hold on to the title um, for purposes of the financing.
0: Well, I think that's fascinating and it does show you that creativity in a port can be more than just being able to, you know, uh, um, lease property to, you know, a stevedore to unload cargo and you know, unload and load cargo. So, um, it sounds like it's really been advantageous for you guys. So, congratulations. It's so interesting. So, no free tickets I'm guessing to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you don't get to Meet any famous rock and rollers,
2: right? <laughs> I, I do sit on their board on an ex officio basis, so uh, that's kind of fun. Uh, and uh, they do a great job over there. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, for your listeners, I'll give it a plug. If you're in Cleveland or you can make it to Cleveland, visit the Rock Hall. It's great.
0: <laughs> so, so you said you got property on the east and west sides of the mouth of the Calumet, is what excuse me, Cuyahoga River, but. You know, I know that the Lakers, because talked to my brother about this, Lakers would go up to the, Cal- the the Cuyahoga River, and um, to the steel mills, I guess. But what's your relationship with that kind of business? Is it primarily? I mean, are Lakers calling on your the domestic Lakers calling on the port of Sh- of, uh, of Cleveland, or um, like how far up the river? What's going on? Sure.
2: Well, let me describe that. Um, yeah, we're we're an integral link in the in the iron ore supply chain to our steel mill here in town. We're still uh, along with north, Northwest Indiana. You know, we're Cleveland is where you know a big integrated mill is still located. It's now um, under the ownership of our very own Cleveland Cliffs here in in Cleveland. Um, they've got a long story and a long history, uh, starting out as. an iron ore mining company and now getting more vertically integrated and they're the largest owner of, you know, flat rolled steel um, plants here in the U S. So what the way it works is the, um, the ore is coming down from uh, primarily Minnesota, a little bit Michigan mines, and it goes to our bulk terminal, the ports bulk, bulk terminal located on the outer Harbor, it's discharged there by cell phone loaders, uh, typically thousand footers, and and then it is transferred back to what we refer to as river class vessels, somewhat smaller than the thousand footers, but still big ships, usually about six hundred and fifty feet long. Um, the Mark Barker, which some of your listeners may that name may mean something. That's the that's the newest of of the river class ships in the in the Laker fleet just, um, commissioned, uh, this past summer built by a New lake steamship company, uh, also located here in Cleveland, that, that class of vessel will, um, uh, receive the iron ore. Um, it's, it's loaded back, you know, back out to a ship. So it's a transload operation via our shiploader at the bulk terminal. <clears throat> and then it goes upriver about five and a half miles tw- uh, twisting and turning, uh, journey up the very, very narrow Cuyahoga River, and it kind of startles people when they see these enormous ships, uh, you know, going by so close that, you know, they can almost reach out and touch them on the river. And those ships will make their way up to um, the, the ore dock, at, receiving dock at the mill, and then that iron ore comes off, and it goes into uh, the mill. And of course, that's the primary um, feedstock for for steel steelmaking. And, and your brother would be very familiar with that, um, with that journey. Um, it is, uh, qu- something to see. And those, those, those pilots, your brother included, they are so skilled. Um, they actually back the ships down the Cuyahoga river quite often instead of, uh, using the turning basin to turn around. So, uh, making it even more of a, an amazing feat of navigation.
0: Uh, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. So, most Great Lakes ports say that they're freight bulk ports. Got it. And, and folks, we've talked about this, but bulk is like it sounds. Um, uh, Will mentioned iron ore. You can move gravel, grain, um, anything that is moved in bulk, right, as compared to any other form. Um, but Cleveland also talks about the fact that it's a container port, too. Well, the Great Lakes is not known for being a container waterway. How is it that Cleveland is handling containers? What's that about?
2: Yeah. Uh, Great question. Um, So you're absolutely right. You know the um, the cargoes that move on within the system um, on on what we refer to as the Lakers that that can't get out through the St. Lawrence Seaway locks because they're too big. Um, They're mostly carrying, as you said, you know these these bulk commodities, a lot of them natural resource um, commodities uh, that we have here in in the Great Lakes and that's a fantastic trade. Um, It it continues to be um, extremely important for our for our economy not just regionally but but nationally and so we are um, always doing everything we can to uh, to support that trade and grow it here in Cleveland. On the other hand we also look you know through the St. Lawrence Seaway through our our connection to the rest of the world to growing trade, developing trade uh, with Europe and, and with other parts of the world, but primarily with Europe. And when I got here back in 2010, we set our sights on uh, trying to sort of crack the code when it comes to container shipping on the Great Lakes, which, as you mentioned, um, it's kind of died out. It it, it it flourished for maybe 10 years or so in the very early days of containerization. And then as the ships got bigger and bigger, too big to transit the uh, the seaway locks, um we it all went away and uh so we were we were we were left uh, without that here um and i think that's really a shame i don't think that's inevitable some say we can't compete i don't really buy that so we um uh invested heavily and really started on our own as a port the cleveland europe express service which is still exists it's in its 10th year we started in 2013 and um uh it pivoted over to the private sector from the beginning we had a relationship with um uh, a company called split off uh based in amsterdam not a household name to in the in the cont- world of container shipping but a but a well-known very well-established break bulk tramp operator um mostly multi-purpose ships in their fleet and um very good company. So they took an interest in uh, trying to do this with us. And, and um, we had sort of a joint venture for a few years, and then we transitioned it over to, to them um, solely, and they continue to operate that uh, service today. We'll probably hit uh, about 10,000 Um It's probably where we ended up last year and we're hoping to do better this year, which is a very, very small number, of course, compared to, you know, mega container ports um, on the East and West Coast and around the world. But that's not really our reference point. We're not trying to be a mega container port. We're trying to be a useful, valuable port for companies that are, you know, maybe within... um, half a day's drive or so for the most part um, of our port and, and, you know, really be a niche port, but but have a reliable container service that um, fits their needs and gives them an alternative to the traditional routings.
0: Well, um, it's, it's funny because if someone does know the container business, they're going to say 10,000. But you got to understand that there's, they don't really move in the Great Lakes. So 10,000 um, is, you know, if it's keeping the business, there, the shipping line um, still calling, um, that's great. So um, during this congestion, you know, in the last couple of years under COVID when there was incredible congestion on the East and West Coast um, ports, did that help you guys? Uh, did you were you able to get out there and kind of say, just come straight in because you don't have that issue?
2: It did benefit us. Um, we were out there saying that, and off was working hard to um, go out and acquire uh, customers, which which they did, and we really did see a spike during those uh, couple of years. I mean, you remember what was happening? We all remember. In fact, it you know it it sort of broke through into the mainstream media, so it wasn't just something that people like you and me uh, were hearing about. But you know, shippers couldn't get containers. They you know they couldn't get. Um, you know, bookings on, on, uh, on the, on the carriers, there was that massive backlog primarily in LA Long Beach and elsewhere. And it was bad here in the Midwest. I mean, we were getting calls right and left from um, not just exporters, um, importers as well, who were struggling. And so it, it did, it did uh, it did kind of um, put some wind in the sails of, of this service at the, the rate. What happened with rates was also, um, from the carrier uh, side of it for split off. Um, that was a good thing because as the, you know, as rates uh, w- went up, um, it, it made it easier for them to um, get out and, uh, you know, make some money on the service. And, that, and that's important because if they don't make money, they're not going to stay in it.
0: Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, so Cleveland Europe Express, it goes between Cleveland and what ports?
2: It's Cleveland, uh, typically with a stop in um, in Canada, um, usually Valleyfield, which is uh, uh, near Montreal and then um, Antwerp on the on the uh, on the Europe side. Uh, And uh, it's it's a the 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 value proposition is really the transit time Um, door to door. We consistently beat uh the transit time through you know traditional east coast uh, routings and then on to intermodal rail typically or sometimes truck um so that's a big selling point visibility over of the cargo you know having personalized service being able to pick up the phone and call somebody with the port call somebody at split off um all those things are attractive to uh, shippers here
0: Oh, yeah. It, folks, people may not, I mean, if those of you in the logistics business understand, understand that time is money, but also the amount of handling is money. You know, um, and in this case, <clears throat> if you've got a container or containers that you are really important and you need them in a timely fashion. So picture them going into a port where there's already 100,000 containers sitting around milling, right, as compared to, you know, <clears throat> whatever is coming in on on this ship directly to Cleveland. So, um, a lot to be said for having control over that. So, congratulations. I mean, um, if you know the Great Lakes, you know that that's a big deal, that that Cleveland is doing that. And again, some of that is because um, you're in the eastern side of the Great Lakes. So, not, you know, and it's like I said, stone's throw to the the St. Lawrence River. Um, Now, uh, will I notice that you um, got your undergrad degree at University of Indiana and your master's in public administration from Indiana University, Purdue. Are you originally from Indiana? Great Lakes guy,
2: I am. Yes, I grew up in Indianapolis, and um, after I got that um, MPA, um, I just fell into the port industry world by accident. It was just a referral from a from a faculty member to um, the guy who was running the Indiana port system at that time. You, you may remember him, Helen. Uh, Frank Martin, who at one time ran Chicago port and then came to Indiana. Um, This was, uh, I I hate to say it, but this was the late, the late 1980s. So that, that's how I got my start um, on the Great Lakes and in this business. um, Just, just by accident.
0: Yeah. uh, Mention of Frank is a blast from the past for sure, but I honestly wouldn't have thought it was that far back. Um, You know, I remember your name, but uh, so, so, um, like, like you said, though, looking at your career, though, I'd consider you a professional port manager. You, you would think that that's what you got your MPA in, right, is to be a port manager. Um, but then it must have been fun to kind of run the ports of Indiana. I mean, is that like a you know pro, pro quarterback from Indianapolis going to play for the Colts?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, uh, it was an honor. Um and I was very fortunate to, uh, and I, I credit Frank again, Frank Martin. When he when he retired, he really advocated for me coming back. Um, I had worked for him initially, and then I went out to Seattle for 10 years and worked for the Port of Seattle and probably would have stayed um, had had they not offered me the position back in Indiana. So, you know, I was still in my 30s, and to run a port system at that age was, you know, quite a quite an honor for me. And um, uh, that was a um, great experience. Indiana is a unique system. It's a statewide port system with three ports, including Burns Harbor up on Lake Michigan and, and two facilities down on the Ohio River. So it it got me exposed to not only uh, the Great Lakes, more time on the Great Lakes, but the inland inland waterway system as well.
0: Yeah, uh, it, and Great Lakes shipping is very specific, as you know we've talked about. But um, having been out of Seattle, you know, kind of getting a sense of that bigger, larger um, kind of a port is interesting too. Um, so, if someone, this is kind of a digression, but you know, I'm always trying to promote people to, to consider port work. Uh, And I'll say, gee, did you look up, you know, on the American Association of Port Authorities, if there's jobs available, did you check your local ports? Because I think it's fascinating work. Um, But, you you know, at this point, I mean, of your career, if someone said to you, boy, I'd like to be in like port administration, is it just a matter of getting the college degree in business or something and, and trying to find a job? Do you recommend that people do formal port management training? How would you do it if you had to recommend it?
2: You know, I think there are multiple entry points into the industry. Um, And as you said, you know, I wholeheartedly recommend it to young people. It's just not something that people think about here in the U.S. very much. You know, this isn't the Netherlands. Um, You know, maritime is not top of mind. Uh, But there are great careers and great career paths, uh, both on the on the Public port authority side as well as with um, private companies. And uh, engineering is a good way in, you know, the technical side, um, environmental, more and more people with skills related to um, environmental issues and sustainability and, and carbon reduction, uh, huge, you know, getting bigger and bigger every day in our industry. Um, you know, all the other uh, sort of specialty professional areas, you know, law. I just hired an an in-house attorney um, who came really out of energy. She was a commerce commissioner in in the state of Illinois and moved over to Cleveland. So there's a lot of ways to get in. You don't have to go. You you know, it's great if you want to go to, you know, one of the maritime academies and and you've got some, you know, maritime um, education and skills. That's fantastic. But there's many different ways to get in uh, to this to this business. Uh, and port authorities, I think, are great employers.
0: You know, I appreciate your point about that there's all kinds of jobs in a port, and the fact that, you know, you are looking at coastal resilience and climate change impacts and environmental requirements, and, um, you know, I, there's just, there is a lot of ways you can be involved, and so um, I think that's great. I, I work with a lot, or had worked with a lot of um, um coastal engineers, but, but, but even like, um, uh, marine scientists, right. And, and I'm always saying to them, but gee, have you thought about looking at a port? Because they don't automatically think about that, that, you know, but, uh, anyway, that's a really great point. Um, so it, you know, um, everybody's talking about cruise shipping in the Great lakes. How's, how's uh, Cleveland doing in that department? you know uh
2: we're we're right at the forefront with um <clears throat> what i think is going to be a real um cruising um kind of renaissance uh maybe that's the wrong word but um you know we have had steady growth uh, i think we'll be up probably over 50 cruise ship calls this season <clears throat> everybody got in, in uh, interrupted by covid of course but We've picked up right where we left off. Um, Viking, which came into the system last season, didn't come to Cleveland Cleveland in its first season, but it is coming this year, Um, and we're really excited to have Viking. And other uh, cruise lines are coming into the system, building uh, ships that are seaway-capable, you know, these sort of uh, expedition-sized cruise ships. And it's really been discovered as a cruising grounds, and I think the customer experience is is, is a very positive One um, ports are really welcoming. There's a good combination of um, urban and more um, natural experiences for uh, for these uh, passengers, and um, so the future looks really bright as far as uh, as cruise shipping go. We we're at, we're just a day stop at this point. Um, For the most part, it's been Milwaukee um, on the west end and Montreal, Toronto, you know, on the east end as the um, home ports. Uh, But, you know, I think I think that's going to change over time. I think the cruise lines will look at other places like Cleveland potentially to, um, you know, to embark and disembark passengers as well.
0: So when you think of Viking, um, you often think of those barge-like ships that are on, you know, the Danube or other rivers in Europe. So what are the Viking ships like? Are they, I can't imagine they can do a, a barge-like ship on the Great Lakes, but what are these ships like? You said expedition size, I get that. Uh, are they just like mini versions of the kind of cruise ships we see on the ocean?
2: Yeah, these are these are not the, the sort of barge-like, you know, river, river vessels that, you know, Viking kind of pioneered in, in Europe and now they're going elsewhere. These are pretty sleek, um, you know, more like ocean going cruise ships, these new builds, they just built one called the Ocantus that came into the system last year. It's a pretty, pretty glamorous looking ship. Um, Very well appointed inside Very, very sleek on the outside. They've got all kinds of nice toys on them. um, You know, like inflatables that they take people out in off the back, a submarine, they take people down to shipwrecks um, you know, swimming pool, all, all those amenities. So these are pretty impressive vessels. Um, and, uh, they're, they're built, they're sort of seaway max size. So they're, they're not small. Um, they're good size ships for, uh, for our system.
0: Toys. I think that's great. I, my, my eyes lit up if you could have seen me when you said submarine, because we've been talking a lot about, um, uh, uh, shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. And with the Noah's Thomas Jefferson coming into the lake last year to do some bath, uh, bathymetry, I can't wait to have them. Like, can they, you know, when can they share that they found more shipwrecks? And I just think that sounds fascinating. So most of the, I'm assuming that most of the cruise ships that are calling on Cleveland, are they all foreign flagships, U.S. flagships? I asked because they do present a different challenge.
2: Um, yes. So the they are um, foreign flag. Um it, they are typically bouncing back between the U.S. and Canada once they're in the system, um, and that's that. That means that you have to have you know a um, U.S. Customs passport control facility in the port. We 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 had to build a special facility. We're one of only I believe three or maybe four ports on the Great Lakes that are. Um, um approved for uh you know receiving uh, passengers coming in from from Canada uh so yeah th- th- this is it's a combination of there is some there is some I believe there is some US flag and foreign flag
0: yeah i mentioned that because um having worked for vessel agents um way back when you know just helping to have even customs itself or having ports understand um the nature of the business you know the Passenger Vessel Services Act and requirements. So a lot of these ships, um, if they, you you get a gun in Toronto or something and you make your way through and then get off in Chicago, I guess it's, it's just interesting because it sounds to me like most of these cruises last a couple of weeks.
2: Yeah. I think two weeks is probably the longest itinerary. Some of them, I think there's a, you know, there's some 10 day, more like 10 day options and maybe some seven day in there too. Um, I, they've been coming out with a lot of new itineraries, and I haven't studied them. But I, you know, I think you can you can pick among different um, you know different lengths of uh, of trips.
0: Well, um, I, I'm sorry, I have a little personal interest because I, I secretly would love to like get um, not paid or volunteered to go on one of these ships and cruises to give lectures on something. I don't know what it would be, but I'd love to do that in return for a trip. Yeah. I think that would be so much fun. You, you, should, you should do that. <laughs> well, you should do that.
2: I think that would be a great time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think
0: she'll have to put in a good word for me. And I think, I
2: think the uh, passengers would
0: love it. Oh, well, thank you. I don't know how to contact any one of these ships, but it's, I just love the thought of it. It would be fun. I, I'd like to talk about dredging because when Cleveland was not really what I would consider a, nation, a, a natural um, harbor. So, um, and so way back when, 1800s, I guess, and into the late 1800s, um, the mouth of the Cuyahoga River it silted up a lot. Um, all the time. And then you had lots of windstorms on Lake Erie and battered the lakeshore. You have erosion. And you know that that requires a constant repair of docks and unloading facilities, especially if we're talking about the 1800s. So, I also read that really it was in the 1880s when Cleveland started to have some systemat- systematic dredging um, around the Cuyahoga, probably by what was then the Army Corps of Engineers, or federal dredging. So, what's your situation now? Do you require dredging every year? And Um, then I guess you talked a little bit about where your dredge dredge spoil goes with this nature preserve, but what's your status and how do you manage that?
2: Yeah. uh, Dredging is a big part of what we do at the port, probably bigger for us than, than many ports around the country. The Cuyahoga river does still continue to need dredging twice a year. As a matter of fact, Um, it's dredged typically in the spring and then again in the fall, and um, uh, the Corps generally will remove. It's a federal channel, so of course the Army Corps is responsible for dredging, um, and they'll usually remove around two hundred fifty thousand cubic yards, which which is a lot. Um, and the dredging part is kind of the, the easy part, um, relatively easy. Um, you know, just going out with the right equipment, the Corps will you know hire a dredging contractor and they'll they'll go out and scoop it up. The hard part is where do you put all that material because we can't put it out in the open waters of Lake Erie um, anymore. That practice was discontinued back in the early 1970s, and the state continues to ban open lake disposal of uh, dredge material. It was it was allowed for a while in other harbors, um, Toledo included, but not here in Cuyahoga because there was still too much um contamination uh, mixed in with the sediments. So that means you have to build these confined disposal facilities, which the Corps built a bunch of them around the Great Lakes back in the 70s, sort of big basins, if you will, big um, diked off bowls um, were essentially you just landfill uh, the dredge material. And uh, there have been four or five of those built here in, in Cleveland. One of them was it's now been turned into a nature preserve, and there are several more that are still, still active. And we've kind of flipped things on its head a little bit here in Cleveland, where typically the core will operate those confined disposal facilities. Um, but here in Cleveland, we now operate them, the Port Authority. And we've been um, very, very innovative, and we've sort of stretched the life of these um, uh, CDFs beyond what the core would have uh, with the way we operate them. And that's been that's been good for the core. It's been, of course, good for us in our harbor. And we continue to work very closely with the core um, on planning and then implementing more improvements uh, as time goes on. One of the things we do that I really want to tout is that we beneficially reuse, which means essentially taking the dredge material and putting it to use uh, upland somewhere um, about 50 to 60 percent of the material we now truck it off site and it goes into you know into a construct into construction for as fill um, or it's mixed in with with topsoil that kind of thing so um, it, it's been a real uh, success story for us and we're really a national leader in terms of the beneficial use
0: yeah. Tell me a little bit about the um, nature preserve. You said that was that was created by uh, dredge spoils. Is that correct? Did I understand that correctly?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's essentially a, a peninsula um, that juts out into the lake uh, that had, you know, been filled up um, with dredge material, and then it was decommissioned by the Army Corps and came back to the port. The way these CDFs, the way the law works the core had to have a local sponsor that kind of provided the space for the CDF, um, and access and all that. And, um, once the core is done with it, they turn it back over to us here locally. And it, it sat there dormant for a long enough period of time that mother nature took over and sort of greened it up and people started clamoring to use it. And when I got here about 10 years ago, um, uh, you know, we looked at it and we said, boy, that's a great idea. We should just turn it into a nature preserve. So it is now the Cleveland Lakefront Nature Preserve. And it's very popular, especially with birders, because it's it's a great site for bird watching. Um, and it has spectacular views of the city and, in you know, essentially a 90-acre park on, on the lakefront. So that's one of the things we do that's um, really a nice uh, amenity for the community.
0: Wow, it, that does sound great. It's are you? Does that mean you're in the park business now too? Did you add that to your resume?
2: That's right. We're we're in the park management business, which is really you know, I mean, port authorities around the country um, quite often will will be in the park business, and um, you know, we'll we'll provide public access to the waterfront and and, and do a good job of it. Um, Seattle is a good example. Uh, I don't know if you've spent any time there, but a lot of the waterfront parks in Seattle are run are actually. Port of Seattle parks.
0: So when you said you dredge twice a year, man, I, I, that's like Louisiana caliber dredging. I I just couldn't imagine that it silts up that often.
2: Yeah, it it, it does. The Cuyahoga river, um, it's not a big river. It's not a large watershed and, you know, it's it's not sort of this rip, rip roaring river with tremendous energy, but it is from what i'm told it's sort of geologically still a young river and so there's still a lot of sediment it's sort of trying to straighten itself out and to do that it's got to grind through you know earth and sweep it downstream and then deposit it at the mouth of the estuary so and here we have a ship channel that's been you know deepened um five six miles upriver. as soon as the current hits that Deeper area, it slows down and the sediment just drops out, most of it by the steel mill, which is right up at the head of navigation. So it can literally, we can see um, four or five feet of um, sedimentation overnight if we get a big enough
0: storm. Well, I'm a little surprised. Like you said, the Cuyahoga isn't long or big watershed. I think it only goes about 100 miles, of which much of it is fairly small. And I don't think there's a lot of agriculture over there, not like in Toledo, you know, uh, with the Toledo River, where you've got everything's coming from agricultural runoff. So I'm surprised, but still, um, the fact that you've got kind of uh, Army Corps trained to request the funds, uh, the O&M funds every year is pretty great. Um, and uh, congratulations on that. So those that kind of operation isn't simple, right? Um, managing all of that, so especially um, your shippers demanded, obviously. <clears throat> so. I can't, can't stop this conversation when they're talking about wind energy and turbines. What's going on um, in the Cleveland area about wind energy development? Yeah,
2: sure. Um, so Cleveland has had an, an initiative going back almost 20 years now to um, build a pilot or demonstration offshore wind facility. Um, there was a nonprofit. There is a nonprofit. Uh, still in existence called, um, Lake Erie Energy Development Corporation or LEEDCO and LEEDCO's mission is to try to get this pilot project built. Um, and they, and they've been at it a long time. Um, I'm on the board. I'm actually sort of running it at the moment because the staff, um, went off and work is working on other offshore wind projects, uh, elsewhere. We got stalled by some, uh, lawsuits here for a couple of years. And, um, Folks had to go off and make a living. So, um, we at the port have been involved from the beginning. We're we're big proponents, as you know. Um, port authorities, term, you know, terminal operators, our industries, you know, really really excited about offshore wind and what it's going to mean. And there's investments already happening on the East Coast as they gear up for, you know, the big utility scale projects there and. I, you know, I think that that's a potential future for us here in the Great Lakes. There's certainly some controversy around it. Um, there are opponents, as I mentioned, uh, the Leadco project has has um, had some lawsuits. We are fully per- permitted now. It's called Project Icebreaker. We're, we're fully permitted. Um, we're really, you know, at a point where we could um, relaunch this project. Uh, we have a, an agreement in place with a Norwegian company that, Um, had been all set to be the developer. And then, as I mentioned, things got bogged down and they kind of hit the pause button, but they're looking at the business case again, and we're hopeful that they will come back in as developer. And if they don't, there'll probably be others that would and get this pilot project built. It's not, this isn't a large project. This is a little more than 20 megawatts. So, you know, probably it'll probably end up being four to six turbines about 10 miles offshore here in Cleveland. And the idea is to prove the concept, you know, can these, can they operate in ice conditions, winter conditions? Uh, what's it going to mean for wildlife? Um, and, you know, can we successfully uh, plug into the grid and produce energy um, reliably? So uh, the federal government is, is with us. Uh, we had received a grant from uh, Department of Energy and that grant remains in place, and so they're eager to see us get, get moving. And um, it's uh, an exciting project that uh, I've been having some fun putting, putting some time into.
0: Well, I, I, it is so interesting. But in terms of conflict, I, I can't imagine that these are going to be built in, you know, in, um, to conflict with shipping. So where are the big complaints?
2: Yeah, the, you know, the nav- navigation community, the, the, they you know, there was, um, you know, we went through the, the NEPA process and, and um, of course, had to confer with, with all those interests and, and they they and the Coast Guard was involved and they didn't have any problem. They didn't see any problems with um, those structures being in the water. You know, it's, it's a big lake and there's plenty of room to go around them and they're not going to miss them. Um, the, the opposition has largely come from people who say they're concerned about bird and bat um, impacts. And there were, we did a, Leadco did a huge amount of, of, of study, uh, you know, hiring experts to study that question. And, you know, the federal government, Department of Energy did, you know, did did the NEPA, um, really ran the gauntlet uh, on, on all of this. And the conclusion was, <clears throat> you know, that in, any environmental in, environmental impact should be very, very minimal. But there were those who felt that that wasn't necessarily going to be the case. So they, they sued and said, no, you, you didn't do enough study and this is going to harm birds and bats. We went all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court and the Ohio Supreme Court said, no, they did everything they should have done. The permits were issued properly and this project can go ahead. So we've cleared that hurdle and, you know, we can, we can move forward. And again, the whole point here is this is a demonstration project and, um, you know, we're going to get out there and, 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 you know, see how they operate. Um, you know, when they're built, there'll also be some, um, the, a, there's a permit condition that requires us to get out and do some, uh, more studies, kind of radar and LIDAR type studies on the birds before we even build these structures. So, um, and, and there are boaters, there are uh, recreational boaters who have objected and said, oh, we don't want these out there. Uh, we think they're going to be an eyesore and they're going to be in the way. Um, but uh, some, you know, polling, we've done some polling over the years and the public overwhelmingly seems supportive. So, um, but you know how it is. It's very hard to build uh, these, any, you know, listen, any large scale project today is very difficult to build.
0: Yeah, I understand that completely. Are you aware, Will, of any other pilot projects like this in the Great Lakes?
2: No, um, we're, we're the only we're the only project. Uh, the National uh, Renewable Energy Lab (NREL) is about to come out with a big feasibility study on Great Lakes wind because the Biden administration and the Department of Energy really wants to uh, push it forward and sees it as an important component to meeting the, um, you know, the goals that the administration has set for um, taking on climate change. And so it's not out yet, but in my discussions with folks at the Department of Energy, you know they're anticipating that this study will more than likely be, be positive when it comes to the potential for uh, wind in the Great Lakes. Um, you know, I think Lake Erie is probably the best suited uh, it's shallow, so that it means you can, you know, in terms of foundation design, you have more more options. There's a lot of grid connection potential, you know, back into the grid. Um, and there's a good wind resource. Most importantly, there's a lot of wind out there. So um, we'll, we'll see if uh, the federal government, you know, gets a little more aggressive here in the coming uh, year or two.
0: Thank you. Um, the uh, concept that that Lake Erie is relish, relatively shallow, probably has some good bedrock there as well. So, well, we'll be watching. Um, so, thank you for that. Um, well, I can't really, It's a, we're kind of almost out of time here. I can't thank you enough for joining North Coast Chronicles podcast. Um, you clearly have your hands in lots of pots and definitely not uh, bored. And another reason why you probably enjoy your job so much. You're a great guest. Um, now, other than to talk about the flats of Cleveland, which is the area known for its restaurants and bars, uh, what one thing do you want people to take away from our conversation today?
2: Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I'd like—I always make a plug as you, you know, you—you've spent your career in maritime. You know, the—you the, know, I, Americans need to think more about the maritime mode of transportation. Look more to the mode to, to the maritime mode of transportation. I think we've got so much upside potential um, here on the Great Lakes and along our coasts to utilize the mode more. And I think it can be a great source of jobs. We've already touched on uh, employment in maritime a little bit. Um, so that, that'd that be kind of my parting shot. Um, and then uh, come to Cleveland and uh, visit us here. It's uh, um, actually a place that is is a lot of fun. Whenever I talk to people visiting, they always say, wow, I, I didn't realize Cleveland was going to be so nice. You know, we sort of have that, that Rust Belt reputation, but um, uh, it, it's a great place to visit.
0: Well, so I got to ask, does the port own any bars down in the flats?
2: <laughs> uh, we, you know, we own, we, I guess I would have to say yes, because we own some bigger buildings, hotels and the like. In the flats, and there are bars in those. So technically, I would say yes. Um, so if you come and visit, I can, I, I can be your tour guide. And uh, the flats is still an awfully fun place, and there's a lot going on.
0: Yeah, it's fun to sit down there and see the Lakers literally, you know, glide right by. It's very cool. Um, well, thanks so much, Will. I really appreciate you taking time with us today, and thanks to our listeners for joining us on North Coast Chronicles: Tales from the Great Lakes. I'd love to hear from you. Again, send any comments, ideas for shows, or to be a sponsor to North coast Chronicles at gmail.com. Our theme song is played by Catherine Chambers, and the podcast is produced by Tyler Buckingham and me, Helen Prohl. Please join us next month as we continue our adventures on America's fourth seacoast. Until then, be good to one another.